This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Assistant Professor Dr. Cameron Zinsu. Hey, how's it going? Who is a specialist, uh, among many things, on World War II in the south of France, and particularly the kind of the occupied French in the region. And so we're, we're going to talk about a topic that doesn't get a lot of coverage in kind of traditional World War II um, coverage and, and discussions, especially on the more popular side, which is the occupied French citizen in what is probably fair to say is a secondary theater when we talk about Operation Dragoon and the uh, invasion of southern France. Would you agree with that? Not entirely. I'd say partially. That's how it ends up in practice becoming, but in its original conception, very much a primary component of the Overlord campaign. Okay, fair enough. So we're going to talk a little bit about, by way of intro, talk about the campaign, and then we're going to move into what it's like for these kind of average French people, which, is, again, is part of the Allied story that we, we generally gloss or, or don't cover at all. So, Dr. Zinsu, let's start kind of with the big picture. Uh, we, are, we are going to eventually have Allied armies invading occupied southern France, but how do we get there? How do we get from United States is in the war, allies are forming strategic plans, they're in North Africa. How then do we get to southern France? Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me on here. Uh, it's really interesting to think about how Operation Dragoon comes to fruition. Uh, its original first conception really happens as allied strategic planners, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the Combined Chiefs of Staff, this kind of planned this joint planning committee that you know the British and the Americans put together to f- essentially formulate, dictate, and run the Allied strategy throughout the world uh, over the course of the Second World War, they're starting to think, how do we get back on the European continent after Allied armies were kicked out of France in 1940? And there are all kinds of things thrown around, ideas. Uh, eventually, you'll have plants that go into Greece, go into the Aegean, uh, go into southern France, go into northern France. There are all kinds of contingency plans, for instance. What if the Soviet Union seeks a separate peace with Hitler or collapses entirely? There are emergency plans for that. How do we coordinate the meager landing supplies that we have, or land the meager landing craft that we have with all other kinds of requirements all over the world? We have a finite number of these landing craft. How do we get the most bang for our buck? And over the course of late 1942 and into 1943, uh, the Allies decide that we're not ready to invade France yet. And so they instead choose Sicily and then Italy, Operations Husky, Avalanche, and eventually Operation Shingle. And the really solidification of an invasion of southern France happens in November and December of 1943, when the Allies meet first in Cairo and then in Tehran. So in late November 1943, 
Winston Churchill, FDR, Chiang Kai-shek uh, from Nationalist China. They all meet in Cairo to kind of get together and say, what are we going to present to Stalin? Not Chiang Kai-shek. He's there only for that specific reason. Uh, but really, Churchill and Roosevelt say, all right, we need to present somewhat of a united front to Stalin because he's an evil commie. And, you know, we, he, we can't trust him, right? He was allied with Hitler before Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. So they decide, all right, let's pitch this, this operation. But the Americans and the British don't really agree on it. The Americans kind of want a, an invasion of southern France, whereas the British want to maintain a more flexible approach, as has been their guiding principle. Which is code for not getting their army killed. Right, exactly. You know, especially you know they have a, they have a finite number of resources, and for you know quite a long time in 1940, early 1941, we're really the only power fighting the the Axis menace, and so you know they're a very limited army. They they need to make sure that they're doing what they can to preserve it. Absolutely. Uh, so you you've mentioned that there are campaigns in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, understandably, you know, if the Allies invade North Africa and then move to Italy, there's kind of a land bridge there, right? So why not just keep fighting north through Italy? So the problem with Italy is that traditionally, if you look throughout the course of military history, armies invade Italy from the north and work their way south into the plains uh, where you have maneuverable territory. And then as you work your way down, it gets a bit rougher, but it's generally speaking gently going downhill whereas the opposite is true uh, especially if you're landing in the southern part of the country uh, there's very mountainous and hilly terrain that makes it extremely difficult for attacking armies to move upward or to move to the north from the south and it's very defensible terrain and so we see almost immediately when operation avalanche and then later operation shingle occur Allies getting stuck on the beachhead and almost thrown back into the Mediterranean. And this creates very quickly an attritional campaign in Italy in which the Allies are unable to find any kind of significant breakthrough. So the idea then is avoid the Alps. Instead, we're going to shift over to presumably Marseille, the Hone Valley, and then go north? So not exactly. What ended up happening is that you know there are all these grand predictions made by allied planners and mostly championed by Churchill who say no no we'll be in Rome by Christmas it'll be fine don't worry about it guys we got this very quickly it becomes evident this is not going to happen they are not the allies are not going to be in Rome by Christmas and the British who have invested a large amount of the fighting power they have remaining within Italy want to make sure they're getting the most bang for their buck and so they want to reinforce Allied armies in Italy, especially while they're waiting for another front in France to open. However, the Americans have said, okay, well, we have these supplies, we're supplying most of the material, and we will be supplying most of the manpower. So we need to find a way to support the main effort of 1944, which will be an invasion of Northwest France from England. And so at Tehran, there are kind of these competing conceptions going. And to everyone's surprise, kind of FDR and Stalin kind of hit it off, and much to the chagrin of Churchill, there are a bunch of amazing stories about there about how Churchill's feelings are hurt and he feels cut out and left out 
the recognition that, you know, maybe Great Britain's not such a great power anymore. Uh, but Stalin comes out decisively in favor of an operation in southern France. And this he reasons that taking those forces for southern France and just injecting them into Italy will lead to nowhere. You just run into the Alps. Or you can maybe maneuver east into the Balkans, but then you're actually going away from the main effort, which is supposed to be northwest France or working your way towards Berlin. Right. And so at the conclusion of this conference in Tehran, the Allies uh, come out with a prepared statement, or I mean not a prepared statement, in the meeting minutes it says, um, Operations Overlord, which is the invasion of Northwest France, and Anvil, which is the codename for the invasion of Southern France, are the two supreme operations of 1944. No other operation in any other part of the world must happen that in endangers the success of these two operations. I'm slightly paraphrasing. That's essentially what they say. And so in, in early December 1943, sweet, we, ha we have the strategic plan, strategic operational plan for 1944. And in conjunction, Stalin will launch uh, an offensive that summer. Within six weeks, it's all gone to hell. It, the Allied plan is completely blown up. And this is because of a second landing in Italy, Operation Shingle, which happens in mid-January 1944. Okay, so now we have the, these kind of, as you say, competing strategic visions and acknowledging there's another complete other war happening in the Pacific. Uh, but in Europe, we have these, these you mentioned, the, 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 the Soviet, the British, and the Americans kind of all disagreeing on what should happen. And now we have the option to land in northwest France, uh, which is the overlord plan. We have the option to land in southeast France, which is Anvil. We have the option to keep fighting in Italy. So how does then, as we know, overlord become kind of, if not the primary, maybe the paramount operation of those three? So overlord was always going to be the paramount operation. There's this recognition that we need to get him through France. And the best way to do that is absolutely through Northwest France. Now, where in Northwest France, that's a subject of debate that, you know, that's for a separate, you know, episode D or discussion. Episode, yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, what ends up happening is that Churchill, essentially, Churchill hatches this idea of what if we land an amphibious force behind German lines in Italy, we'll rupture their line, and then we'll be in Rome in like a month. It'll be fine. It'll be great. Don't worry. We got this, guys. And so within the period of a few weeks, this invasion plan gets together. And it was Operation Shingle. And the Allies land several divisions at Anzio, in the Anzio, the vicinity of Anzio. This is Mark Clark? Uh, yeah, Mark Clark. He's uh, Fifth Army. Uh, this is where, you know, maybe one of his quote-unquote fabled stories in which he's flying in, you know, scout aircraft and patrolling the beaches, you know, urging men on. So what, but at first, initially, it looks like the Allies have achieved absolute surprise within days, however, the German response led by Field Marshal Albert Kelsoring hymns in the Allies on the Anzio beachhead, and they're stuck there until late May. Now, what, what does this have to do with Anvil? Well, 
Churchill said, this operation is going to be a great success, so I just need to borrow these resources we've now recently tagged for Anvil. I just need to borrow them for like a few weeks, it'll be fine. We'll still have enough landing craft for both Overlord and Anvil. And the, these divisions earmarked for Anvil will be back and they'll be training, there'll be plenty of time. Oopsie poopsie, right? That doesn't happen whatsoever. And so all these forces are strained, and now they have to, the Allies have to supply another beachhead when, you know, they weren't planning on doing that. And so this quickly turns into not just a tactical problem, how are we going to extricate ourselves from the beachhead and, you know, make forward progress, it becomes an operational strategic problem. All of a sudden, this very delicate balance of landing craft and supplies earmarked for all these different operations, now I'll have to go to this impromptu, poorly planned invasion and landing force. And so over the course of January, February, March, and into April of 1944, the British are saying, uh, we should totally cancel Anvil. There's no way this can happen. Americans, led by Dwight Eisenhower, who has supreme overall command of Allied forces in, in Western Europe, says, no, 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 I think this is paramount because in its original conception of this Overlord plan, you're thinking about the most audacious theater-level operation maybe you know, conceived in the Second World War, a simultaneous amphibious operation on opposite ends of a country. That's a pretty crazy thing to want to undertake and, and happen, and that's exactly what the Allies were planning to do. So imagine in an alternate universe in which you have a French army and an American army landing in southern France at the same time. You have these five divisions landing in northwest France. All of a sudden, it's an amphibious pincer movement of sorts that's happening. And, you know, who, who's to say, you know, what you know, outcome that, that alternate reality produces? However... Eisenhower, seeing the difficulties of logistics and the problems that still exist on Anzio Beachhead, relents, resigns himself to the fact that this probably isn't going to happen. And so in April 1944, the Allies cancel Operation Anvil. So it's completely removed from the Allied docket and land and, and Allied plans. At the end of May, there's another offensive that happens in Italy. German lines break to a degree. The beach at Anzio combines with the main Allied line in Italy. The Allies capture Rome on June 5th, on June 6th. The D-Day landings happen. And then all of a sudden, there comes this report from the Combined Chiefs of Staff saying, we have like landing craft available now. We can use these. So, what do you want to do with them? We can like do things, and immediately the Americans in the Joint Chiefs of Staff say, Anvil, resurrect Anvil. We've been planning for it. The Deputy Supreme Allied Commander in the Mediterranean, General Jacob Devers, had been quietly putting supplies aside, because he's like, no, 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 this operation, we're going to make this operation happen. So even when it was canceled, he was still shepherding supplies, organizing training, timetables, intelligence recon in the southern French area. And so when this plan gets presented to 
the combined chiefs of staff oh wow this is already ready to go in ways that no other alternate plan had been developed to that degree and eventually that gets adopted and implemented much to the chagrin of winston churchill who up until six days before the operation is pleading with eisenhower to call it off he even at one point says i will lay down the mantle of my high office if this operation goes forward and he he's 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 suggesting operations of like ridiculous they're just ridiculous in in conception he wants to land at bordeaux he wants to land at brest he wants to land in places that require significantly farther amounts of travel than the operation would taking units from sardinia right. to southern france right. and 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 all of these become readily apparent and and so that's kind of how we get to the genesis of of anvil which is renamed overlord on or excuse me which is re, renamed dragoon on august 1st 1944 that's how we kind of comes to pass okay so and uh, one more final piece of background given where we're going you you've spoken a lot about the allied command structure and the allied leaders and you know the civilian leaders churchill roosevelt stalin the military leaders like eisenhower and jacob devers uh, perhaps conspicuously you haven't mentioned anybody french so why is that given that france is in theory a co-equal ally why do the french not count for much in this planning so this is because uh, you have the French, free French leader, Charles de Gaulle. He's trying to coordinate all of you know, the resistance in the country. He's trying to dispatch his political rivals, namely Henri Giroux, which he, he does. He's the co-leader, correct? Giroux and, and yeah, de Gaulle are... For yeah, for a time, yeah. but de Gaulle astutely politically outmaneuvers him and kind of relegates him to a figurehead of some minor department, and eventually he leaves service altogether or goes to the army I forget which which the problem is is that the French are mostly fighting with colonial soldiers and not only that they're also largely equipped by the Americans and so both the Americans and the British view that fighting French regular forces is very much subordinate to Anglo-American interests because there would be no free French army without the Americans supplying them and the British ferrying them around. When Church, excuse me, when De Gaulle is living in London uh, during the years of occupation, if he wants to leave country, he has to receive permission from the British in order to leave. And so, you know, in theory, yes, France is a co-equal, but in every practical measure, it's not. And you know, Churchill and Roosevelt don't pretend that France is. And so, in many ways, one of de Gaulle's great achievements is getting France to be treated as a co-equal victor in the aftermath of the war, even though almost all the things that he was able to do would not have been possible without the British or the Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in the case of the now renamed Dragoon landings, there are substantial French forces present, correct? So could, could you walk us through kind of what the forces are that are going into southern France? Sure. So on the Allied side, we have the 6th Army Group, and Devers will leave his command as Deputy Supreme Allied Commander of the Mediterranean to lead the 6th Army Group. And this army group is composed of two armies. One is the American Army, the 7th United States Army, and the other one is the first French, it's called French Army B, but then later is renamed the First Free French Army. 
led by uh, General Jean de Latre de Tassigny. And that army is composed of seven divisions. It's a big field army, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very large. Uh, and the Americans, by contrast, only have three divisions. And then there's a special, it's called the First Airborne Task Force. It's essentially a brigade-sized brigade size unit that lands through gliders and, and parachute droppings uh, into the interior of the country. And so the operation takes place on 15 August 1944, Napoleon's birthday. And the Allies are able to land 94,000 soldiers on the first day with 400 casualties. And this is in the vicinity of Marseille? It's to the east of uh, Marseille. So between Marseille and Nice then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the Côte d'Azur. Yeah. Um, Which is where all the rich people's villas are. Absolutely. So no better place to invade and land. Right. And so the Allies make rapid progress. This is because their German foe has been severely weakened. So one of the primary justifications for Anvil slash Dragoon was that it would fix attention in southern France, preventing the rapid buildup of German forces in northwest France to contest the landings there. However, in practice, the opposite actually occurs. Instead of being a diversion for Overlord, Overlord actually ends up becoming a diversion for Dragoon. And so the German 19th Army uh, has largely been stripped of most of its mobile, well-trained fighting manpower. Remember, at this point, summer 1944, the German army has already gone through its best troops and its second best troops and probably its third best troops. Yeah, so it's a bunch of Czech conscripts left. Though. It's a bunch of Czechs, Poles, Russians, Lithuanians. There are, there are a few quality fighting formations. The 198th Infantry Division is pretty good. The 11th Panzer Division is making its way to the east from uh, southwest France. Uh, but other divisions throughout the summer had been recalled to reinforce German lines in, in Normandy. And so low fighting quality, low morale, very quick to give up and surrender or retreat. And by this point, we also have the Allied breakout in northwest France, Operation Cogra, uh, which eventually culminates in the Battle of the Flays Gap. So the Flays Gap is happening about the time that the Dragon Landings occur. And so Hitler orders a general withdrawal to the north. Otherwise, Allied forces advancing from the west to the east would cut off the 19th Army. And so the Americans, especially the Americans, because the French are largely laying siege to Marseille Toulon, two great port cities, in order to capture them and open them up. The Americans are in many ways conducting this operation of movement in order to cut off German forces along the Rhone to hopefully bag a huge haul of Germans. And this culminates in the Battle of Montelimar, which is where a lot of my research happens. Okay, so let's let's flip this to the other side then, and let's talk about where you do tend to focus your research. We now have the kind of strategic allied view of what's happening. Let's talk about the other side of this, which is the French citizen of a town like Montélimar. Uh, so what has happened to the average French person throughout the occupation, which started in, in 1940? Oh, man. A lifetime. A lifetime of things in four years. Well, what's really interesting about Montélimar, one of the reasons why you know, I'm drawn to, to southeastern France as a region for study, is because it 
the typical story of occupation doesn't exist in southeast France like it does in, say, Paris or in Lille or, you know, northern half of the country. So after France surrenders, yes, the Germans split the country, and you have occupied France and then Vichy France, which is supposedly under independent and of its own volition cooperating with the Germans, but really... With no formal agreement, though. That was just key. No formal agreement. And yet the French have to pay an indemnity cost of 400 million francs per day for the German occupation. Right. Which culminates with 250,000 German soldiers on French soil. Right. So, for the first two years of the occupation, there aren't any foreign soldiers in Montelimar or in southeastern France, or in Vichy. Which changes when the Allies land in North Africa. Late 1942. Right. In November 1942. And what we have... Then is actually Italians show up. So there had been an agreement between Germany and F- Germany and Italy that in the event of a t- complete occupation of France, the Italians would get roughly nine departments in southeastern France up to the Rhone River, and the Rhone River would be the demarcation line with the Germans. And Montélimar falls just on the Italian side of the demarcation line along the Rhone River. For those who aren't familiar with the city, it's about two hours north of Marseille and about two hours south of Lyon uh, via train. And so Italians are there from November 1942 until September 1943 when the Allies land in Italy. And this is a great thing about being a military historian, a modern military historian. You can't talk about the social and cultural and economic impacts without talking about the military circumstances as well and vice versa these are inseparable things so the idea that there's a new military history or a traditional military history in 2022 should be uh, obliterated from our lexicon Um, no i agree it's not 1960 anymore right yeah so i'll step down from my soapbox now it's all right so the germans show up september 1943 i leave in august 1944 with the battle of so Germans are only present in this city for 11 months out of a four-year occupation, whereas we traditionally think about a German four-year occupation of France. Yeah, we have the, the movie image of people sitting in cafes with Gestapo walking by, but that's not Montelimar. No, no, it very much resembles Casablanca much more than it resembles uh, any typical yeah, portrayal of Paris. Where you have the Vichy official who's, you know, kind of in his own world, then you have the occupier, whether it's the Italian or the German, and then you have all these different local interests. Yeah, absolutely. And we see these play on multiple more. And so, for me, it presents, you have all these different governing authorities over the course of the war. Because when the war starts, you have the French Third Republic. You transition from the Third Republic to Vichy. Then you transition from Vichy to the Italians, then to the Germans. And then you have no government because everyone's fled because I don't want to get blown up. And then you have the Americans slash allies slash free French government establishing control. And in theory, it's the free French government that has control. But in reality, they're relying a lot of their daily functions. A lot of their daily function relies on the Americans. And there's not, if I'm remembering correctly, there's not an official election until 46, right? So, yes. That is when 
Elections are held. They were actually held throughout the latter half of 1945. But I, yeah. But they don't there's, get finalized until There's two legislatures that sit at 46, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't have an official government until then. Right, yeah. And, and that whole time, it's all provisional. Right. So how do you then make sense of a kind of wartime experience? And for, and for me, I think that looking at French and other governing authorities' laws and practice surrounding requisitions is the best way to look at this. Because they get introduced as soon as the war starts, and they don't actually end until 1949 for the purposes of the Second World War, right, up through the end of the war. And essentially what we see is that precedents established by the Third Republic get followed by subsequent governing authorities through the end of the war. And so the civilian experience you can characterize as one of deprivation, intentionally so by government, right? This doesn't have to be a negative thing. The Third Republic isn't requisitioning people's belongings or quartering soldiers with them because they want civilians to suffer. It's to ensure that France can survive by necessity. And in the United States, it can be hard for people to understand because we have things like the Third Amendment, which prevents the quartering of soldiers. And we find that this material deprivation only escalates with time. And so my personal argument is that France underwent an occupation the entirety of the Second World War. And so the different governing authorities don't represent a difference in kind, but a difference in degree. So the severity at which civilians are subjected to requisitions at the beginning of the war look a lot different than they do in 1944 when the Germans are there. But it's also something that they're familiar with because they've been living with that for five years up until this point. Um, And this material deprivation of civilians isn't anything new in kind of the literature that exists about France. Uh, Historians are quick to point out that all kinds of goods and foods and services are denied to French civilians unless you're willing to pay a lot on the black market or you have connections. And so, yeah, that would be my general characterization of being a French civilian during the war. Yeah, so let's dive into this. Um, When you talk about government, and when you talk about the source of the power for these requisitions, are we talking about government from the center, from Paris, from Vichy? Are we talking about provincial government? Are we talking about city government? So, what happens, especially after France surrenders, and so let's talk about the Vichy period, which is June 1940, to November 1942, nominally through August 1944, but functionally speaking. Well, actually, functionally, right, they're still there, but very much have to uh, get a quick nod from from the Germans when they want to do anything. Yeah, Peyton and Laval essentially become puppets after the North Africa landing. Absolutely. And so what you have happening is that the French army is demobilized. And so a lot of the power, functionary power, that happens and is expressed at the local level comes through the prefect or this regional administrator and then through the mayor. And so in Montelimar, for instance, we have Edouard Tardieu, who's elected as a socialist in 1935 and is the city's mayor through 1944. So he essentially comes in with Leon Blum well before the war. He comes in before Leon Blum. Leon Blum becomes prime minister in 1936. right. Yeah, so he's elected even a year before. But very much a part of the the kind of sign of the time. Yeah, the kind of the pink wave of the mid-30s. Right, yeah, in the the aftermath of 
uh, you know, the Kugul rising in, in 1934, right. 6 February 1934. And That's when a group of fascists basically tried to overthrow the government in, in Paris, failed horribly in 34, but it scared everybody. Right, yeah, and a very much left-wing reactionary. And so what happens is that there's kind of this review of local mayors that happens once Vichy comes into a power. Are the Is this mayor favorable to us? Us meaning the Peton regime, uh, a, a right leaning, a right leaning, uh, conservative authoritarian government that comes to rule France during the war years. So are they? Is this person? Is this local government favorable to us? To what degree are they likely to carry out our policies? And Tardieu writes a very effusive letter to Pétain in the summer of 1940. Oh, our great marshal, you know, with you, I know all things are possible, and we definitely need national rejuvenation, and you're the one to lead us forward. Please accept this generous donation that we uh, have put together. We were going to send it to our soldiers, but obviously we don't need that anymore. <laughs> um, and le later you'll find, uh, later the prefect writes, says, we find the government of Montelimar to be you know, disposed towards our, our, our whims. And so for, for, this, for American audiences, uh, the prefect is essentially like a state governor, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, uh, and so in France they have these things called departements, which are roughly equivalent to the state. In minus the, the federalism. Right, yeah. minus the federalism. So, so we've got this socialist mayor who at least, uh, you know, in, in, on paper is pro Vichy mm -hmm. and we've got the prefect who agrees with him I presume the prefect is going to stay in office prefects get rotated regularly okay. not only as they curry favor and disfavor but as necessity as well so as some get arrested some leave their post and join the resistance uh, and, and some aren't very good at their jobs pretty much normal bureaucratic stuff. Right. But what we end up finding is that there's a, quite a rapid rotation of prefects in many of France's departments over, throughout the course of the Vichy tenure. So this kind of suggests then that, that your mayor is more or less left to do what he wants in a, what is a relatively small city? Yeah, so the, the popul wartime population will tell them it's 15,187. And the thing about the mayor is that in, in France, the mayors are very much seen as a protector of the people, and they're seen as a uh, patrie, or a father-like figure. And if you're familiar with Les Mis, that's, that's what Jean Valjean does when he becomes Monsieur Le Maire. Right, and also in, uh, oh, I forget his name, but in a French village, uh, the historical dramatization of a fictional French village living under the German occupation, he very much does what he can to protect the people from the excesses of the Nazi occupation. And, and Tardieu very much attempts to serve as this facilitator. He's hearing everyday people's complaints. He's out, you know, writing to people, uh, visiting people. But he's all, so he essentially serves as this hinge and this between the administration that wants to impose more, more onerous terms and demand more from the civilian population all the time. And the civilians themselves are saying, we can already barely live under these requisitions and these restrictions already. And, 
you know, please do something about it. And so he's he's actually in a very difficult position throughout the entirety of the war when it comes to balancing these two interest groups. Yeah, that's a that's a good analogy. Um, so we've got this mayor who, who, for better or for worse, kind of sees himself as the the shield of of, of the town. Um, you mentioned that the army has been demobilized. So what does that mean for the people who were in the army who then go back to a place like Montevimar? What do they do? Well, a lot of them do things like be a prisoner of war in a German camp somewhere. There are 1.7 million French POWs. Uh, when France surrenders to Germany, that's just an astonishing number. And they're essentially hostages. Right, exactly. So the ones who aren't taken POW and who are able to come back, they're demobilized. France is limited to an army of 100,000 with no air force and a completely uh, neutered navy. Which looks a whole lot like the Versailles restrictions on Germany. And very purposefully so. Hitler even brings out the train car. Right, from Compagnia, and yeah, there's the whole ritual, and then he blows it up. Right, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. and so anyway, he's he's exacted revenge. He's restored Germany's honor against the French. So we've got, as you mentioned, there's there's POWs, but one of the other big kind of human deprivations is when the STO starts, which Mm -hmm. is this forced levy of people where the Germans, through the Vichy government, are essentially just pulling away the working manpower, literally the males, from France. And a lot of them are exported to Germany to mm-hmm. work. So uh, how does the STO, which is inaugurated, if I remember correctly, early 43, yeah. how does that hit a town like Montelimar? So what ends up happening is that uh, Franz Sokol, the kind of the German minister responsible for implementing the STO, sets quotas to the Pétain regime and says, Get me 200,000, 250,000 civilians. Get me 300,000. And then these numbers escalate over the course of 1943, and his final number is 600,000. And Vichy's never able to meet this. It's a, I think it's a total of 343, something like that. Yeah, and what ends up happening is that it actually leads a lot of people to fling their homes to go join the resistance. So we really see the ballooning of the resistance in 1943 and into 1944 when, as a result of wanting to avoid having to do compulsory work in Germany, young French men flee to the hills. And this is when we, the, the more popular images of the Maquis begin, begin to arise. Uh, and so, yeah, this is then implemented again at the local level. So Montelimar, right, 15,000 people. All right, so we need, you know, these 30 or 40 names. Because everything is, there's a census, you know, we know who's how old, who does what, who's a prisoner of war, who's around. And all right, so go get these people. And so the local police uh, will do so. However, right, can't meet the quotas if they're not there. And so, yeah, the, the, the STO never, never really never really uh, benefits Germany the way that they think it will. However, what this does do is completely discredits the Pétain regime because he can no longer lay claim to be serving as a quote-unquote shield against the worst excesses of the Axis yeah. occupation. Now he, now the French government is formally complying with German demands to export French labor to Germany for a German war effort in which France is ostensibly neutral. Yeah, and of course by this point, 
Peyton is probably not cogent enough to be making decisions. He is 84 when he becomes the yeah. leader of France in 1940, right. which is an astounding number. We talk about the age of some elected officials in the United States today, but to be 84 and then to assume command of a country, that's... And to live another decade. And to live another decade, he certainly... Right, <laughs> yeah. right. I'm glad you brought up the resistance. So let's talk about the resistance a little bit. Um, it's not the uniform anti-axis group it's often portrayed to be. It's a lot of different groups, a lot of different interests. Uh, what's it like in southeastern France? Yeah, so there's a really great book by the historian H.R. Kedward. It's called Rural Resistance in Southern France. And then he has a second book that comes out, uh, In Search of the Maquis. It really talks a lot about these dynamics. And it highly recommend both for, for further reading but just to summarize what ends up happening is that you don't really see a lot of resistance in southern France in 1940-1942 it's Vichy what do they have to resist there aren't there any Germans there what are they going to do fight the French no France has just had this terrible horrible defeat and you know it's time to coalesce however there are some some people very minor players uh, it's really when the full Axis occupation happens in 1942, late 1942, where the resistance begins to, to spring up. And in 1943, with the implementation of the STO, is when you start to see large-scale participation. And the area around Montelimar, being in the Rhone Valley, it's surrounded on either side by pretty mountainous and hilly terrain, meaning that it's easy for pe local people with local knowledge to hide and subvert uh, access patrols. And over the course of 1943 and 1944, we begin to see a m more developed resistance community within Montelimar itself, who's hiding people and, and the like. And then we begin to see our first sabotage efforts against the Axis. And this mostly occurs through uh, derailing trains that are going from north to south. And as a consequence, we begin to see an increasing German repression of the civilian population. We begin to see Gestapo and SS uh, contingents begin to arrest people, sometimes indiscriminately so, to interrogate and question them. Uh, we see the attempted dismantling of resistance networks within this city. Uh, and there's a really famous memoir that comes out in 1945, so right after the end of the war, by Robert Vernon called On se bat à Montelimar, or On the Battle of Montelimar, in which he talks about the growth of the resistance movements, because he was in the essentially Montelimar area resistance. And he talks a lot about not just the battle, but also how many of his comrades were killed, uh, either leading up to the Allied invasion up to the Battle of Montelimar, and even during the Battle of Montelimar. Uh, Main Street, what was formerly known as Main Street in, in Montelimar, is uh, now named Rue uh, Pierre-Julien, after one of the more famous figures uh, to be killed during the Battle of Montelimar. And so what we, what, what you see is this, it's never, you know, it's not ever as widespread and ubiquitous as popular French memory will lead you to believe. But at least in Montelimar, it was pretty healthy and compared to some other regions and some other areas, pretty robust. Uh, and, you know, they even have contact with uh, 
special operations executives or SOE agents. These are secret, they're not secret. Well, I mean, at the time they were secret. Secret, specially trained British agents who would parachute into occupied France in order to give supplies to organize and in some cases train resistance elements. Because it's very decentralized. There's no resistance army, like you mentioned. It's very decentralized, all kinds of competing interests. Mm -hmm. But, you know, cobbled together, it's uh, pretty impressive what they're able to do with their limited means. Yeah, and you brought up a point that's worth bringing up, too, is is that this is an area that traditionally resists central power. This is where the Camisar Revolt happened. A, a century prior to that, there were lots of Huguenot revolts in the region. So southeastern France is not a region that takes uh, central control lightly, whether it's French or occupied power. So that, that makes a certain amount of sense. Um, does it help them in any way to be close to foreign countries like Switzerland, like Italy, or is that just does that not um, play? So, to the degree that it does, in in my research, I've only found a few instances in which families are petitioning, say, the Swiss government or the F- Swiss embassy, the French embassy in F- Switzerland for for aid, for help, for transit papers. There are only a few cases of that. So it's just nothing widespread and there's no particular benefit to being that close to the Swiss or the Italian border uh, that I would, that I'm aware of. Okay, no, that certainly makes sense. Uh, when these resistance cells form, are they kind of the typical French resistance story where you have a charismatic local leader, maybe a former politician, maybe a leading you know, farmer, uh, workshop owner, and then they, their friends kind of get together and then they kind of snowball? Is that, is that the same thing you see happen in Montelimar? Yeah, to a degree. And so, for instance, there's uh, one local shopkeeper, Roger Poyle. He... Uh, you know, is a local figurehead, and he helps uh, organize a lot. There's a other I can't remember his name right now. He's the he became the mayor after the Battle of Montelimar. So former, and this is typical of many French locales in the in the immediate aftermath when the Germans depart. A resistance leader becomes the governor or leader of of, of the town. So you, you talked about the landings, and we've kind of pulled both stories up now to August of 1944. So we now have Allied troops landing at the mouth of the Hon River. They're working their way up to, to Montelimar. You mentioned there's a battle in, in and around the city. Um, what, what's the reaction to what could be perceived as just another occupation this time by Allies? How do the locals look at the... Um, Franco-American troops who were there. They very much perceive them as liberators. There's a widespread understanding that, oh God, thank God, they're here. And, you know, our time of salvation's at hand because they're already aware of what's happening. They've been watching the landings in Normandy unfold for the last two months, wondering when is their moment of salvation going to come. Yes, they're reading about Allied bombings and, you know, the devastation that's happening to the local countryside. And they're also reading about liberated spaces this is a reality that many french people have been dreaming about for four years and so you know in the typical expressions that you might see in on film both you know historical newsreels and in dramatized scenes like in band of brothers for instance and when they're in the netherlands 
That very much happens in southern France. However, it's a very fluid situation, especially in and around Montsaint-Mar, because you have a German army attempting to retreat while you have advancing American forces attempting to cut them off. And so it becomes a very dangerous and very precarious situation for civilians in and around the area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's that famous Band of Brothers scene where they're in, I think it's a, the town in the Netherlands, and there's just the family up in the old destroyed building, mm-hmm. which is probably a, a good analogy for it. Uh, do you see the kinds of reprisals towards kind of local collaborators, particularly women, which is kind of one of the shames of, of de-Nazifying France, um, where quote-unquote horizontal collaborators are collectively and publicly punished. Do you see those kinds of scenes? Yeah, so one of the most famous pictures of this occurring in France actually happens in Montelimar. Is that the picture of the woman with her head being shaved in the square? Yeah. Okay. And that is taken by a United States Signal Corps photographer around the time of the battle. And it's you can find it on the National Archives website if you look for images. So that absolutely happened. In terms of extrajudicial killings of supposed collaborators, there's only one confirmed killing in my research. Now, there are lots of other deaths that I can't definitively speak towards. But somebody just fell in the river. Right. What we do have, though, is a lot of German reprisals against civilians in the immediate lead-up to, during, and as they're departing. Mm-hmm. So there are... There, there, both French resistors and Allied soldiers find executed families. They find people with their hands tied in face-down in rivers. Um, it's very, very harsh. Uh, you know, rampant pillaging and looting of already, you know, bare homes... Uh, leaving people with nothing. And in the aftermath, society is in a near state of collapse. Not because there was a, you know, a wasteland, but there's substantial damage. A National Route 7, which is the primary road that goes through Montelimar from Marseille up through Lyon, is strewn and littered with thousands of destroyed vehicles, tanks, carriages, thousands of dead horses not to mention thousands of dead people and the associated crater impacts and churned up earth all of these things need to be removed and reconstructed repurposed and that's going to take years to do not to mention the farmland that gets destroyed the damaged buildings that need repair and the hundreds of tons of munitions and ordnance that need to be safely disposed of there's an entire service set up just dedicated to removing munitions from the city area that people have to now inhabit. And so you come across all kinds of stories of children playing with grenades, their grenades going off and, and severely wounding them and people dying because they think that, oh, it's safe to pick up this shell. Well, then it blows them up. Right. And, and so in some ways the aftermath of the battle is more dangerous to the local people than the battle itself. Which is a point we tend to miss in, in particularly traditional military history where you track the operations and you don't look much at what they leave behind. Right, and I think that's the great value of a micro-history of a town during a conflict in which active combat comes and goes. The Battle of Montelimar lasts nine days. Right, but and the yet, people are still there. The people are still there, and, you know... 
it's it's a popular thing that you see anytime and exists with anyone across any space. It takes a really long time to build something up, and it is really easy to destroy it. Right. And we we see that time and again, and you know, in all conflict, in which you know, beautiful places and places that people call home are all of a sudden reduced to ruins. And you know, when you've spent your entire life rooted in one place, what does it mean then to grow again from nothing? Yeah, and I wanted to return to a point you made earlier. So you mentioned that there are these seven French divisions, um, as well as the American troops, and, and a lot of the French troops are colonials. Was there any particular reaction by the locals of a place like Montelimar to colonial troops, to people who were uh, generally non-white, um, sub-Saharan African, black African, or uh, Arab, Berber, Bedouin, um, so during the operation itself, uh, nothing that comes to my mind. Again, the colonial troops are largely in Marseille and Toulon, liberating those cities. And so to the degree that they're encountering these colonial soldiers in the aftermath of the Battle of Montelimar, it's only as they're passing through. However, prior to the war, there had been a, a 28th Regiment uh, Tunisian Trailleurs, was a colonial regiment that had been stationed on Montelimar since 1938 and 1939. And they developed a very close relationship and bond with the citizens of Montelimar to the degree that in November 1939, the Montelimar Municipal Council passed a bill and donated 500 francs to the regiment for Eid Mubarak at the end of Ramadan. And writing back to the city council, the regiment's commander said, you know, we're all so grateful and thankful. You know, we will take care of and protect our French brothers and sisters. And so in places where colonial soldiers, at least in my experience, are able to establish relations and be a presence within the community itself, a very warm relationship does emerge. Now, if the soldiers are more transitory, that very much complicates the kind of relationship that's able to be built. And it doesn't just apply to colonial soldiers. You see this during, throughout mobilization, throughout all of France, mm -hmm. with transitory soldiers coming through damaging property, for being forced to stay in people's homes. Doing what soldiers do. Right. And, you know, they're only there for a couple days. Right. And, and so it's not so much uh, the colonial soldiers themselves, it is, it is the nature of being a soldier on the march. Yeah, that's an interesting contrast with the uh, infamous incident in 1944 where Eisenhower orders the colonial troops to not be at the front of the parade liberating Paris, right? Because they can't have black and brown faces liberating a French city. Right. It's the exporting of the American racial hierarchy to Europe in right. ways that, you know, in some ways a French can resonate and understand with. But in some ways, they find quite anathema to, and in some cases, abhorrent to, to, to what is happening to African-American soldiers and uh, persons of color in French generally. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's another interesting um, topic for another podcast episode. Um, so let's go ahead and, and kind of march towards a conclusion. You mentioned that we still have these, these restrictions, uh, rationing, until 1949, as we mentioned earlier as well. Uh, the government is kind of in chaos until the Fourth Republic is constructed in 46, uh, when you have two legislative elections. So when does Montelimar kind of return to, to normal? And I'm doing air quotes. I would say 
with the election of a new mayor, I think it's in 1952. Uh, the previous, the temporary mayor, and again, I can't remember his name. I feel terrible for forgetting his name. He gets replaced because he's kind of seen as an interim. Then there's a guy who takes over. And then the provisional mayor comes back in a subsequent election and, and becomes mayor for several more years. And I think with his, after he leaves office, and it's the early 50s, so you're beginning to see the renaissance of the French economy, what they call the Trente Glorieuse, this, this odd, mm. unpredicted 30 a uh, year-long period from kind of 50 to 80, 75, somewhere in there, yeah. Right, yeah, and uh, reminiscent of the Belle Epoque at, right. at the end of the 19th century. And, yeah, I'd say a lot of, you know, the damage is absolutely repaired by then, and people are beginning to become consumers again and embrace this kind of new life in the aftermath of the Second World War in ways that they weren't able to in the immediate years uh, after the war. So it did take the better part of a decade to kind of repair this a, a, a very small town. Yeah, absolutely. Because being a small town, it doesn't necessarily have rank high on the prioritization list. Right. And, and in places like Valence or Marseille or Lyon. And so even though Montelimar is the second largest city in the Trome, Valence has, what, 35,000 during the war and Montelimar is 15. So... You know, it's not the most in, densely inhabited department. Uh, and so, yeah, it would take resources a bit longer to get there. Yeah, no, that certainly makes sense. Uh, you, you've woven a very rich tapestry of a, of a side of this war that we don't often talk about. So, Dr. Zinsu, thank you. Sure, thanks so much for having me on. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.